You are now listening to the Green History Podcast, produced by Elm Film Studios and presented by AC the Historian. Okay, there's no time to lose. Let's head immediately into the conference room. With enough luck, we'll be able to contact the doctor tonight. Let me send him a text message. Perhaps he isn't ready to speak right now. Okay, he did not recognize the number, but he's happy to speak to us now. Let me dial again. Assalamu alaikum, doctor. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I'm really sorry about the sudden call. I have with me a young brother from America. He is a keen student of history and he's currently in Riyadh on a six-month Arabic beginners program. His name is Faizan. Doctor, I would like to thank you for this opportunity tonight. Faizan and I were studying the history of the Jama'a al-Salafiyya al-Muhtasiba during the 1960s and 70s and we delved into the story of Juhayman ibn Saif al-Utaybi. When your name came suddenly to mind and I remembered how you had previously told me that you had first-hand experience with this group and even interacted with Juhayman on a personal level. Therefore I called you hoping that you wouldn't mind sharing with us some inside experiences and rare details that would otherwise not be found online or in print so that perhaps we can extract a unique perspective from someone who lived through the story and was part of the movement. Also, I know that you do not normally discuss this in public settings. To begin with, do you mind telling us how you came to know about the Jama'a al-Salafiyya and to what extent did you know Juhayman and Otaibi in person? I lived those events. I was there. I knew Juhayman personally. I sat in his house. I studied in circles with him, and I know that he was a righteous brother. That is truly fascinating, Doctor. And did you know of any other students who had joined the Jama'a at the same time? I lost two very good, three very good friends from America. Two were converts from the United States, Washington, from Bermuda, living in Canada, a brother who was a Lord who gave me Shahada when I accepted Islam. A third young brother, 18 years old, passed Quran from Guyana. Those people were people who were very sincere about Islam. All of them, if you saw them, long beards, turbans, short robes, prayer marks on their foreheads. That doesn't sound too strange at all, especially with many of the more dedicated youth. Doctor, what sort of activities did you and the Jama'a participate in? We used to travel out into the desert, visiting villages, 
We'd get a GMC and 10 of us, whatever we'd head out. We'd take with us Muqtafar Sahih Muslim. And we'd study it, memorize the hadith on the way. So we'd stop off at a village. And one of the brothers would get up. He would lead Salah. And after the Salah, he would talk to the people. Invite them back to the Quran and Sunnah. We'd spend time sitting with some of the local people in villages. And teach them Quran. Many of them could hardly even recite Fatiha. So you're basically educating those in the villages and remote parts of the desert. That doesn't sound extreme at all. So when and how did things escalate? It was in the early days. However, an element came in. An idea came in. People used to try to put into practice all of the forgotten sunnahs. Bring them back to life. Everybody used to fast every Monday and Thursday. But what started to happen is that as more people joined, those who were fasting started to look down on those who weren't. Like fasting on Mondays and Thursdays became a criterion to distinguish between the true believers and the half-baked Muslims. Praying with your shoes on to the Sunnah, which was at that time dead. Nobody knew about it anymore. Only the few studying in University of Medina and, you know, the universities who read Hadith came across. So, in the masjid where we were, we used to gather what is known as Hazar Shatiya, the eastern part of uh, Medina. Thousands of cheap modern students used to go out there. So, we used to pray with our shoes on. Well, some of the local people, it's uh, quite strange, but we educated them. They got to understand it and accept it. However, after that, some of the brothers felt that they had to implement the Sunnah in Masjid al-Nabawi. And Masjid al-Nabawi. Now Masjid al-Nabawi is no longer gravel as it was in the time of Prophet Muhammad When these young brothers, very sincere about bringing back to life this Sunnah, started to walk in the Masjid with their shoes on, of course, these brothers sitting in the front rows, they couldn't deal with it. What is this? People are coming to desecrate the masjid of the Prophet Muhammad They say, this is Sunnah. No, 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 this is not Sunnah, not Islam. Islam, you must take your shoes off. And of course, fights ensued. Muslims fighting Muslims over whether you can pray with your shoes on in the masjid or not. You know, of course. So eventually they got those people and threw them bodily out the masjid. What happened, a series of other incidents like this started to build up. So, some teachers, Professors from the University of Medina came out to the Harashat to talk to the brothers, to advise them. I remember sitting and listening to one of the sheikhs. If you don't mind me asking, doctor, what was that scholar's name? His name was Shaybatul Hamd. Well, I've actually read that it was Dr. Abu Bakr al-Jazairi, but it could be that they both attended the meeting. Afwan, you were there in person, so I'll take your account. But exactly what did the Sheikh say to you? I mean, was he upset? Was he outraged? What exactly did he say? He was explaining to them that wearing the shoes is sunnah. Not wearing the shoes is sunnah. You can wear the shoes here in Harash where it's gravel. Nobody's going to question. But in Masjid al-Nabawi, to try to wear the shoes there is not the correct methodology of Dawah. You must Educate the people first before you can introduce something like this. Otherwise, you're creating fitna. 
Muslim fighting Muslims. That does sound like something a wise man would say. But what was your initial reaction to this? When the Sheikh gave that explanation, I opened my eyes because I was behind them too. Let's get those shoes on in the masjid. But when he gave that explanation, it made sense to me. Yeah, really. Now maybe we are going out on a limb here because uh, I can still put my shoes out here. I'm fulfilling the sunnah and I take my shoes off from us to another way. I'm also fulfilling the sunnah. No problem. And about half of us <coughs> understood and accepted the advice. MashaAllah, it was certainly a good thing that you were able to see the reality at that stage. But what about the rest of the group? How did they react to his advice? The other half would express the idea that this was a government scholar. This is a government scholar. Can't trust him. Who's paying his salary? The government. And the government is not in, they're not applying Islam properly in the country. We cannot trust this government. We cannot trust anyone who's in the pay of the government. Matter of fact, many of those who held that position, they had quit Islamic University of Medina. They quit studying there and then pulled out to form their own circle to study individually. In all honesty, if these were students of the Islamic University in Medina, then why on earth would they abandon their studies? It doesn't make any sense at all. University, they used to give us stipends. Where is the stipend coming from? From the government. So what is the value of this education anymore? Useless. We cannot learn from these people. Once the system had been defined as a disbelieving system, the rulers, disbelievers, and those who were in their pay, all disbelievers, then the blood of Muslims became halal. This must be the reason for their subsequent radicalization then. What impact did this have on the group as a whole? So at that point, there was a split. Yes, and the rebellious group was headed by Juhayman al-Otaybi. I've heard that he was the one who actually confronted the scholars that day and called them out openly. He became the leader of his new faction, which he later renamed the Ikhwan. Apparently, he gained the admiration of many of the young men and they began to flock towards him. And you all know what happened after that? Doctor, how did you feel about Juhayman's arguments and his sentiments towards the establishment? Did you not have any sympathy for his perspective? Personally, when I heard those others take that position, I felt something very negative is going to happen. So I myself stepped back along with a number of others. And sure enough, that segment ended up going out into the desert, forming their own community where they're going to apply Sharia without the benefit of any kind of knowledge coming in from scholars from the outside. They cut themselves off from the scholars, only working with the books now. And working with the books in that community there, Shaitan put the idea the turn of the century is coming. The time of the Mahdi. And people started having dreams that the Mahdi was coming. And at the same time, there was a young man in Riyadh. Fascinating. But who was this man? And why did they think that he of all people could have been the promised Mahdi? Muhammad ibn Abdullah, third year student in Sharia at Imam ibn Saud University, known for his piety who was drawing larger and larger crowds every time he gave Juma. And in his khutbahs, he was indirectly pointing at the system 
at the evils and the wrongs in the system. Very subtly but pointing. Nobody missed the message. So the government moved to stop him. No longer giving any khutbah in his masjid. Then no longer giving any khutbah in any masjid. And eventually he was obliged to leave. I see. But what caused him to end up becoming a follower of Juhayman and his cult? I mean, wasn't he all the way in Riyadh at that time? Tapes of his lectures had reached Medina. Students were well aware of him. He was invited to join that community out in the desert between Medina and Mecca, where Sharia was being applied, and where dreams of the Mahdi were frequent amongst those who had closed themselves off in this. And sure enough, when he arrived, the sister of Juhayman said, this is the one who I saw in my dream. Yet despite all of his knowledge and education, he just allowed them to call him the Mahdi. That's quite questionable. At first, the brother Muhammad, he refused to accept it. No, no, I'm not the Mahdi. You know, I'm a scholar, I'm a student, you know, Sharia, and you know, I'm... No, he says, look, your name from Fahtan, pure Arab, from your description, large forehead, it is you. He kept trying to fight it off, but more people were saying, more people were saying, not only were dreams of the Mahdi there in that little environment, but there were reports of it all around the Muslim world. People were speaking about it in America, in Indonesia, in Malaysia, and other parts of the Muslim world. But eventually, he came to accept that he was the Mahdi. But I guess, with enough people attesting to the same thing, anyone can end up believing the hype. But what became of him after he had finally accepted the title? You know, he married uh, Juhayman's sister, you know, with his own wife, reinforcing it, and everybody around, yes, you are, and you're a righteous man, everybody knows you're a righteous man, and he truly was a righteous man. Doctor, where exactly were the scholars of Saudi Arabia while all of this was happening? I mean, if he was driven out of his own town by the authorities, then it wouldn't have been difficult for someone to expose him, right? What about his teachers and peers at the university he previously attended? I spoke to his teachers after in Riyadh. All they had to say about him was praise. Well, that explains a lot then, doesn't it? Then came the necessity of bringing to life the prophecy. Bay'ah had to be made at the Yemeni corner. Bingo. So that's how Juhayman and his army ended up traveling to the Haram in Mecca. They were seeking to complete the prophecy of the Mahdi. Thank you very much, Doctor. You've really clarified so much for us tonight. If I may, can I ask you just one more thing? It's regarding the Sahwa al-Islamiyyah, the Islamic awakening, and how the Muslim youth were caught up by the confusion that ensued during the 80s and 90s. And we have two scholars there that whose names are commonly quoted. Doctor, if you don't mind, can you clarify their names to us, please? Sheikh bin Baz and Sheikh Safar al-Hawal. I suspect that by now most Muslims would have heard of Sheikh bin Baz, rahimahullah. But for the benefit of my young students here, can you tell us more about Sheikh Safar al-Hawali? Sheikh Safar, the head of the Department of Aqidah in Umm Qura University. He was in his mid-30s. I did not realize he was that young. But how long was he a teacher exactly? He had been teaching for eight years. 
Yes, I remember the book, Al-Ilmaniya. It inspired so many young people at the time. In fact, some people went as far as saying that he was the modern Ibn Taymiyyah. Doctor, can you tell us more about Sheikh bin Baz in the interest of providing greater context to this story? Sheikh bin Baz doesn't have doctor. He didn't graduate from Medina. But he studied under the classical scholars of his time and has taught Islam for over 50 years. A man blind from youth who memorized Sahih Bukhari, not only Quran, but Sahih Bukhari, who has been teaching for 50 years, longer than the time that Sheikh Safar has lived. Can we, in any kind of fairness, compare Sheikh Safar's knowledge to that of Sheikh bin Baz? Without doubt, there could be no comparison between the two at least not with a 50 year gap in knowledge anyway. But don't you see why the youth would have identified more with Sheikh Safar, given his knowledge of current affairs and politics? Besides, how did Sheikh Bin Baz ever keep up to date with all that was happening around the world? Now Sheikh Bin Baz is gone. He doesn't read the newspaper. He doesn't know that Clinton got elected and this one is not aware of what's going on in the world outside, except what people inform him of. So Sheikh Safar and the other younger scholars used to come every month and sit with him to keep him in touch with the latest development. That's news to me, doctor. But given the fact that they used to see each other at least once a month, how did they end up being on either end of the spectrum? Sheikh bin Baz made a ruling permitting American intervention and Sheikh in Saudi Arabia. And Sheikh Safar was opposed. A polarization started to take place among young people. Sheikh bin Baz was branded as a government scholar. So Sheikh Safar's lectures, 2,000, 3,000 people would gather to hear Sheikh Safar talk about missionary activity in Saudi Arabia. Yes, that's understandable. But why didn't Sheikh bin Baz or those who were close to him say or do something? Sheikh bin Baz's circle dropped to 8 or 10 students. Some of his former students even came to him and asked him, why don't you advise the king? And how did the sheikh respond? And Sheikh bin Baz, tears in his eyes, turned to them and said, Who told you that I didn't advise him? Who told you I didn't advise him? Because I don't stand on the member and announce to the whole congregation that I advised the king, does it mean I didn't advise him? There is a lesson in that process. Then I guess we're destined to repeat the errors of those who came before us then because the youth continues to flock towards the charismatic, eloquent and popular preachers, especially in the advent of online social media. The most popular amongst them are those who are quick to point out the evident faults of society and the establishment, just like Johe Man did when he spoke out so fearlessly against the scholars of Medina and against the Al Saud establishment. Doctor we still find many young people making the same error to this very day. Then you are putting your lives in the hands of the ignorant. This is the danger. This is what we have to keep in mind. Thank you so much for your time, Sheikh. We must go now. They call in the Adhan of Fajr here. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. There it is, Faisan. First hand testimony to the events that took place in Medina 
However, we do not have any more time to discuss this right now. We must head off to the masjid before they announce the Akama. Let us continue this conversation next Monday, inshallah. Let's go.